I've never worn a bikini in my life. I have nothing against them, I just hate being damp and cold, and thus being damp and cold and nearer my god to nudity would constitute considerable summertime sadness for me. While I may not be bikiniing, I would never begrudge somebody else the experience if they are better able to regulate their core body temperature than I am. After all, the frisky fabric has been part of our cultural fabric for a very long time. The concept of bathing attire that strays from full coverage one-piece suit variety dates back to at least the 4th century BC. It might seem like a very modern idea, and certainly when it debuted in the 21st century it incited a decent amount of scandal, but being scantily clad aligns pretty consistently with human nature about as far back as you can go. Beyond that, the idea that fashion should have form and function isn't new either. And that's more the spirit of the garment's origin story. The modern bikini may be viewed through a somewhat hypersexualized lens and be regarded largely as a bold fashion statement, but the impetus to design swimwear for women that used less fabric has very practical roots. Ancient Roman mosaics depict athletic women outfitted in bandu tops and bikini bottoms, which would have been a much more practical alternative to the more traditional drapery they spent the majority of their time in. Though you could add an entire layer of complexity to disc throwing if you forced people to do it in a toga. That is not to say that this sporty getup was more comfortable. The tops were meant to restrict breast movement, so kind of envision them as being the sports bra of antiquity. These bands of fabric were actually quite familiar to women, though they were typically worn under a garment, much the same way that we would typically wear bras today. The bottoms, however, were perhaps a bit more distinctive. The briefs were called subligar, little binding underneath, a phrase which inexplicably conjures up a Katy Perry lyric for me for some reason, but I digress. They were often worn wrapped loincloth style, though only ever by those engaging in sport or slaves. In other words, you wore it out of necessity or because you were being forced to and not because you were vying to be Constantinople's next top model. The barely there bathing suit as a fashion statement would come much later, much, much later. Only after several centuries of covering women up in so many layers that by the 20th century, not only had ladies beachwear entered into head-to-toe coverage territory, but covered wagon horse-drawn carts were employed at public beaches to take women to the water's edge so that they would be viewed as minimally as possible by other beachgoers until they were submerged, the sea effectively hiding them and perhaps cleansing them of sin. These bathing machines as they were known, were just one of many extravagant attempts to keep a woman's body from public view. Though as the century wore on, it was once again a squad of women who wanted to fully engage in athletics who said, enough of this illiberal bullshit. There was one athlete in particular who was well suited to the task of leading the charge because she already had achieved a modicum of fame from movies, many of which were perhaps a bit cheeky by the standards of the early 1900s. Thus, she'd already made something of a literal and metaphorical splash. Annette Kellerman, an Australian swimmer slash vaudeville star, was arrested for indecent exposure in 1907. Her day at the beach had become a rallying cry after she disrupted polite society by casting aside her pantaloons 
pantaloons and opting instead for a more form-fitting but still complete coverage one-piece swimsuit. She was not necessarily trying to become the poster girl for freeing one's beach body, though. Her reason for ditching the pantaloons for one-piece was actually very simple. It was fucking easier to swim in. Frankly, everything about pantaloons or bathing costumes or whatever other nonsense was routinely dictated by the puritanical mindset of the era was the antithesis of hydrodynamic. As previously alluded to, Kellerman likely had few, if any, reservations about getting a reputation. She'd already been ascribed notoriety for being the first major actress to appear nude in a Hollywood film. In other words, her badass bitch on the beach stick was exactly the kind of shenanigans the world expected her to get up to. What was unexpected was the response of women who were not known for appearing in films with adults and or aquatic themes. As it so happened, regular women took to Kellerman's sleek swimwear design. The joke was on the world then. Kellerman added designer to her resume and her swimsuit concept, as well as the wellness advocacy it laid the groundwork for, would define the remainder of her life and legacy. Now looking back at Hollywood starlets of the early 40s, you'll see plenty of romping, fun-in-the-sun beach babe photo shoots. A young Ava Gardner, Hedy Lamarr, Rita Hayworth, and Joan Crawford can be seen in these shoots. What they might have cringed at and referred to later as cheesecake shoots that had been set up by the studio and that they were too young to be able to effectively protest. Wearing these form-fitting one-piece or even two-piece swimsuits. Though these early two-piece suits were very much not bikinis. They had plenty of coverage and more specifically, they did not allow the belly button to be shown. Cultural and Hollywood standards at the time dictated that that was the proverbial line in the sand of obscenity. In these photo shoots, there may be a visible spance of ribcage and skin between the top and the bottom, the style that we called a tankini back in my day, which was basically what preteens would wear before they were old enough to graduate to the inherently more sensual bikini. Meanwhile, in Europe, fashion designers, and everybody else really, were beginning to struggle as World War II approached and brought with it rationing of just about anything and everything you loved or could possibly want or need. French design houses in particular began to realize that they would need to make do with a lot less variety, but also materials in terms of fabric. This would prove to be as much a design problem to be solved by scientists as artistes. Enter two men. Ugh, I know. An engineer named Louis Rayard, who I would say would become the father of the bikini, but I kind of hate how that sounds, and Jacques Heim. Now Heim, who was a designer by trade, actually created his scanty bathing suit first. While his contribution is often lumped together with Rayard's, and both men are credited, it was the name Rayard gave to his thready threads that stuck. Now both Heim and Rayard envisioned their creation as being meant for the blonde beach bombshells of the era, and thus when they were trying to figure out what to call the suits, they both took cues from another bomb of the era, the atomic bomb, more specifically the nuclear test site Bikini Atoll. Heim called his little fabric slice the Atom. Riard went with Bikini, which is of course the moniker that caught on. It wasn't an immediate domination though, and Heim and Riard ended up embroiled in a bit of a publicity stunt war. As the story goes, Heim had hired skywriters to fly over a Mediterranean resort, advertising his atome as the world's smallest bathing suit. Riard responded by hiring skywriters of his own some three weeks later, instructing them to fly over the French Riviera, advertising his bikini as being, quote, 
smaller than the smallest bathing suit in the world. That Rayard ultimately prevailed is probably due at least in part to the fact that he did a bang up job in terms of timing the suit's reveal. The bikini debuted in France on July 5th, 1946, just four days after the US started testing at Bikini Atoll. So I mean, Obviously, this was 1946 and he didn't care about trending hashtags, but damn if his SEO awareness wasn't on point with that marketing campaign. Now, even without Twitter or Instagram, the bikini trended around the world, though not explicitly as a result of its name. It was truly scandalous, but also rather impressive that the debut happened at all. Rayard had run into quite a problem in the weeks leading up to the unveiling. It was so controversial, maybe even bordering on trashy, that he couldn't convince a single model to sport it. In the end, he'd hired an 18-year-old nude dancer at Casino de Paris named Micheline Bernardini. She was already quite well-known within the circles that would have known about dancehall girls, but after photographs of her wearing Rayard's bikini spread around the world, she and her navel had to contend with a whole new level of fame. In the first weeks after the photographs ran, she and Rayard received over 50,000 fan letters. Initially, naysaying Americans weren't that worried about the bikini becoming a thing on their wholesome soil because it was incorrectly assumed that no self-respecting all-American girl next door woman would be caught dead in something as lesleazy as a French bikini. But au contraire. Over the course of the next decade, as America became especially hot and bothered about family values and fiesta wear, young gals who were perhaps newly empowered by their contributions to the war effort or just teen who in general did not want to live the life prescribed to them by society and their parents ate up the whole bikini babe aesthetic. Eventually, attitudes began to calm somewhat. In the mid-1950s, the bikini got the vogue seal of approval when the magazine declared the garb had become, quote, more a state of dress than undress. There was not universal acceptance of the bikini, though. The first Miss World contest spiraled into controversy when 1951's winner, Miss Sweden, was crowned in her bikini. The more conservative and religious nations of the world were aghast and vowed to pull contestants from the competition in any future contests. The Pope publicly vilified bikinis, denouncing them as being thoroughly sinful, though I'm not sure if he took issue with the entire Miss World competition or just the swimwear component. In any case, it Kiki Hackenson was both the first and the last Miss World winner to be crowned wearing her itsy bitsy teeny weeny I've put off the Pope bikini. The turning point for the suit would come soon though. When Brigitte Bardot was photographed in a bikini at Cannes, and subsequently Bardot adopted this as being like her thing, it made the bikini's appeal undeniable. While it was a bit slow to rise, the market for the beachwear began to take off whether the Pope approved or not. Though well into the 1960s, there were beaches in the US that handed out citations for wearing them, which would not have been at all dissimilar to Kellerman's indecent exposure summon. Today, the bikini is a familiar presence in the realm of summer fashion. For some it may even mark a rite of passage in one's feminine identity and emerging sexuality. Over the last few decades, the skin-bearing bikini inevitably became associated with female caricatures like Bond girls and boob-bouncing beach babes. But it 
also became emblematic of the very real and very sexually liberated women of the feminist movement. Clothing has long been an avenue through which individuals, but especially women, can confidently assert their sexuality and publicly own it. Its shameless revealing nature may be where the bikini's true power lies. After all, within a generation, bikini-clad supermodels weren't just on the cover of magazines, there were entire magazines devoted to them. Of course, some of that is the result of the inevitable sexual objectification of said models, but our relationship to the bikini has come a long way since Rayard. Remember, he couldn't even get the hottest of hot couture Parisian models to be seen in one just a few decades ago. Fast forward to the 1980s and models would be clamoring to make the cover of the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. French fashion historian Olivier Sayard once said that the bikini endures because of the power of women and not the power of fashion, and that, quote, the emancipation of swimwear has always been linked to the emancipation of women. To the latter point, in today's world it often feels as though we are disconcertingly moving backwards. Women in America and around the world are suiting up for battle, fighting for rights that were long ago won. Rights that are of considerably more consequence than wearing a two-piece swimsuit on a public beach. Or are they? As inconsequential as they may seem on the surface, the bikini represents a fight for the female body that we did win. Now perhaps there's some reassurance to be found in its persistence and ubiquity. By the early 2000s, the iconic swimwear was bringing in an estimated $811 million a year. A symbol of liberation though it may be. In terms of the age-old question of fashion versus function, it turns out that the modern bikini may have strayed a bit from its practical predecessor. According to one survey, 85% of bikinis sold every year never get wet.